We're nearing the halfway point of the season of Lent. Some of you are Lenting something. I was serving some cookies to our church board, and uh, this week a couple started to take a bite, and they're like, oh, well, too late, sorry, I was supposed to eat chocolate or something like that. You may be fasting some uh, activity or something this season of Lent. Wonderful. We are nearing Easter. We're kind of turning our heads toward Easter and uh, Good Friday, the Holy Week, all that that entails. And so over the next few weeks, we want to dive into just a short series again, three weeks, in which we think in particular about the cross of Jesus Christ. We sang about it so beautifully this morning. And uh, again, a lot of this may be stuff that you're, you're very familiar with, but it's always good to be reminded and come back to the truth of of the cross, the centrality of the cross. And by that, we, we often we, we think of the resurrection as well. But the, the, the centrality of the cross and resurrection in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we want to just focus our attention there for a few weeks. And in particular, we want to look at it with a, a little bit of a different angle. We want to think about just what exactly happened on the cross. Well, what was the work that Jesus accomplished? as he hung on the cross and as he died in that place. So we're calling this series, By His Stripes, Understanding the Atonement. By His Stripes. For some of you, that phrase will sound very familiar. You'll recognize it immediately. Others of you are like, what does that mean? But the first part is a phrase from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. He spoke hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus Christ, but foretelling this one who would come, and uh, in, in this certain section of the book of Isaiah, he writes of the so-called suffering servant. This one who, who, who foretold and, and demonstrated and, and spoke of who Jesus would be. And in that chapter, chapter 53 in particular, verse 5, Isaiah wrote these words, He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. It's from the King James Version. He said, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. Um, of course, now we've taken it as Jesus came and died on the cross. We, we've thought about those stripes as being those that he received as he was whipped and he was, as he was beaten. The stripes that he received even as he hung on the cross from those who pierced his side as he bled and as he died. So by his stripes, we're, we're thinking about the fact that, that we are healed. And we want to think about what does it mean to be healed by his stripes? So what, does that, what does that look like? What does that mean? But the second part is very important as well, understanding the atonement. And, and so this is, this is a, a big word that I want us to get a little bit of a grip on this week and in the weeks to come, the atonement. Now, I, I will be honest, I hadn't heard the word atonement a whole lot growing up and even before I went to seminary. Uh, atonement is not a word that maybe, I think it was the name of a movie a few years ago, so maybe you know it from that, but it's not a word that we use a lot in our, uh, in our daily language. Um, maybe if you've forgotten your anniversary one day, husbands, you've had to make an atonement by running to the flower store really quick or something like that. But uh, I remember there was a class at seminary that was called Incarnation and Atonement. And I thought, it's such a fascinating title. What, you know, what could that be about? Incarnation and atonement. And then I mentioned it to my wife, Kyle. I said, I, I'm thinking about taking this class, Incarnation and Atonement. And she looked at me and she said, Reincarnation as a donut? 
No, no. <laughs> this is my lovely wife, bless her heart. That kept the years of seminary very fun, I will say that. But it's not reincarnation as a donut. This is an atonement. And, and to make an atonement in a general sense, this word simply means an action or a gift that helps to rec reconcile parties that are estranged from one another. So when we think about the atonement of Jesus Christ, it's the gift or the act that he is giving that is helping to reconcile, to bring back the parties that are estranged, being God and us. We're separated from one another, but through what Jesus has done, he has made an atonement so that that relationship can be uh, restored and renewed. So we want to talk during these weeks as the cross takes center stage. What is it about his stripes that was and is healing for all of humanity? What was it about the bleeding and the suffering and the dying of Jesus on the cross that provides for the forgiveness of sin, that provides for a restoration of relationship between God and, and people, that provides for the possibility of transformed lives and societies? What was it about the atonement of Jesus that makes for an at-one-ment? Now, just for fun, in your mind, put a little dash in between the at, after the A-T, and after the E, the first E, and you have at-one-ment. It's another way of thinking about what this word means. What was it about his atonement that provides for at-one-ment, this oneness that we can experience and live out in relationship with God. Now, these are questions that, this is a mystery that followers of stu and students of Jesus have wrestled with throughout the centuries of church history. And there have been many attempts. People have come up with all sorts of ways to describe and think about just what happened on, on that Good Friday. Many theories and metaphors have been offered and suggested. And, and interestingly, still throughout history, the, the church has never officially insisted upon one, one way of understanding it, one core way of understanding this doctrine. We're left to listen and to learn and to pray and to wonder about what it is that God has done for us there. One theologian, I like, he called the cross the great jewel of the Christian faith. And you can just kind of picture, I thought about putting a picture up there, but just picture a big diamond, you know, just a big jewel here. And you can think about um, how every great jewel has many precious facets to it, ways that you can see it and look at it, so um, that are worthy of examining for its brilliance and beauty. And so, so is the atonement. So is this understanding. It's different facets, different ways of looking at it, different ways of understanding that are brilliant and, and beautiful. But the difference is, is that the atonement is not something just to be admired. It's not something to be kind of hung on the wall like a trophy or set on a shelf to kind of collect dust and say, wow, look at that, that great gift that Jesus offered for us. No, it's to be lived out. It's to be grabbed hold of. It's to be experienced and expressed. It's to, it's to lead to change in our lives and in our world. In fact, we can even say this, and again, this kind of big words, atonement, theology, but, but we can say that in a world like ours, and in a life like yours and mine, where sin and brokenness seems to be only on the increase, that, that a vital and vibrant understanding of the atonement and just what it is that God did for us through Jesus is more important than ever before. And the urgency of understanding this is critical in our times. One author I wrote said, uh, said, 
most Christians today just are not satisfied with uh, the bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Now, maybe you have that on your car. I'm sorry if you do or you have that written somewhere and you just really like that. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Well, many Christians, this author was saying, are just not satisfied with that understanding of the atonement. We may not be perfect as Christians. Sure, we, we can understand that. But, but we are not just forgiven. The atonement, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, needs to be making some difference in our lives. Some difference in the church. Some difference in the world. So this same author came up of a, of a different metaphor, a little less elegant, but I think just as persuasive, uh, of these theories and metaphors for understanding the atonement. Not as fast as of a precious stone, but as clubs in your golf bag. All right? So I've always wanted to swing my driver in church. I'm wondering if I actually have room without hitting Norma or Darren. Yeah, not bad. All right, not a full swing. Some of you have critique. Jeff might have some golf coaching for me afterwards. But what he said is that we need to think about these understandings of the atonement like clubs in our golf bag. Now, one of the things that interested me most about golf is, maybe you don't know anything about golf. I'm just going to give you a brief little lesson here. Every shot counts the same. The object of golf is to have the lowest score. That means you want to have the least amount of hits to get it from the tee into the hole and over the course of the match. You want the lowest amount of hits. But every hit that you take counts the same. It counts as one. So whether it's a 300-yard drive for some, or maybe 220 if I'm lucky, um, or whether it's a 100-yard wedge shot or chip, or whether it's a two-foot putt, all those shots count the same. So what that means in golf is that you want to make sure that each of your shots, you're giving the best chance for them to succeed. So you don't usually take your driver, which is built, as you can see, to hit long shots, to pound that ball. You don't usually take your driver and use it to, to make a nice little 15-foot chip shot. For that, you would put this back in the bag and you would grab your little wedge right here. I have 52 degrees, that's not the best, but it works sometimes for me. You would use this little cub, club to make it go where it needs to go. And on the green, when you want to make a two-foot putt, you wouldn't use this either. You'd put this back in your bag and you'd pull out your, say it with me, putter. Most of you are familiar with this. And you use it to make that two-foot putt, hopefully, or you'd send it shooting right on by the hole like I often do as well. The point is, is that we need different clubs in our bag if we're going to understand and have the best chance of succeeding in the game of golf. And what this person's idea was is that we need different clubs in our atonement bag, if you will, if we're to get the best understanding, the most well-rounded understanding of what it is that God is doing for us through Jesus on the cross. We don't need to limit ourselves to just one understanding or one interpretation. The reality is, is that Scripture speaks broadly and beautifully and powerfully of several different images that help us to understand just exactly what God is doing on the cross for us in Jesus. So, 
these, these, we need to realize that these things do different things in us, and they do different things um, to us, and they're propelling us toward greater transformation and greater growth. And, and one more other quick story about Kylan Seminary. She, I asked her permission to share all these, but after I'd taken, I don't think I took that exact class, Reincarnation as a Donut, but I did take another class that talked about the atonement. And that was, again, I hope you remember that was a joke. There isn't really a class called Reincarnation as a Donut at Nazarene Theological Seminary. You will never give another offering to that place again. Uh, it's Incarnation Atonement, but I took this other class, and I, I was just intrigued by all these different biblical metaphors for understanding what God's doing on the cross through Jesus. And so I asked Kyla, I said, you know, typical great lay person, read her Bible, grown up a little bit, knows what's going on fairly well. I said, Kyla, little survey, tell me, what do you think God did for humanity by sending Jesus to the cross? And she proceeded to give me about a 30 to 60 second answer that was very well put, well said. I wonder what you would say if I were to ask you that very same question. But when she concluded, I stepped back and I said, Honey, I think you used just about all five or seven of the various metaphors that have been used for the last 1,500 years. And what that demonstrated is that this is happening among us. Most of us, whether we know it or not, are, are allowing these different metaphors to feed us. And even as I sang these songs this morning, I recognized how these songs spoke, even within the same song, used different metaphors or different ways of speaking about what God did for us on the cross through Jesus. So I, I want us to, to think about this a little bit. One, just jump into one for, for a few moments this morning and then a couple other ones in the next two weeks. But remembering all the while that it's not one over the other. Just because I'm talking about one today doesn't make it the best. Or the, one, the, the last one isn't the best because we saved it for the last. It's just these are all different understandings. Jesus said these words in John 10, 19. He said, speaking of his own life, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Nothing that caused Jesus, forced him to do this. He did it out of his own volition, out of his own will, out of his own love for us. And just a few chapters later in John 15, 13, he said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Whatever else can be said, think with me, whatever else can be said for the work of Jesus on the cross, it's clear that what he had to say about it himself is that it was an intentional, a purposeful, and for the benefit of all of those who had put their faith in him. Sin had fractured the relationship between God and man. That's the reality. Sin had entered into the world and fractured the relationship between God and humanity. As Isaiah wrote elsewhere, we had each gone our own way. And yet, through the cross, God was making a way for the problem of sin to be resolved and for humanity to come home to him in relationship. This is good news. So let me talk about one this morning, for just a few moments. One of the powerful images that Scripture talks about uh, to, to describe what God's doing here. Just bump the person next to you. Quick, do it. Okay, good. It's getting a little warm in here. Um, we're doing all right. One of the ways that Scripture speaks of resolving this, this sin problem, restoring relationship, is by referring to Jesus as a substitute. Referring to Jesus as a substitute, a sacrifice 
for humanity who takes our place and satisfies the honor and the justice of God that we have offended by our sinful acts by receiving the punishment of our sin. That was a mouthful. Let me say it again. I should have written this up here for you, but just listen to this. Uh, it refers to Jesus as a substitute. You might just write down a couple of these words. A sacrifice for humanity who takes our place and who satisfies the honor or the justice of God that we have offended by our sinful acts by receiving the punishment of death that we were due. I can just paint a quick picture for you that I think will explain it a whole lot better than those words. And you just picture the divine courtroom. It's the courtroom scene. And, and God's the judge. And we're on trial. And the, the charge is sin. And he doesn't need to make his case very long before it's very abundantly clear that we are, in fact, guilty. We're guilty of sin in the divine courtroom God's the judge, we're the accused, and we are guilty. And the only punishment that is appropriate for the crime that we have committed is, in fact, death. And God declares judgment upon us for the sin that we have committed against him. Our judgment, our penalty is, in fact, death. But before any of that punishment or sentence can be carried out, one stands in that divine courtroom from the back and simply runs to the front and says, instead of this group of people, this human race, being found guilty and punished, I will stand in for them. I will substitute for them. I will be the sacrifice. I will satisfy the judgment and pay the price that they deserve. And that one is Jesus. Does that make a little bit better sense? I'm not sure if it makes sense, but we understand it a little bit more. Jesus, in effect, is said to have paid the price, to have died the death then that we deserved as he hung there on the cross, paying the price for the sins that we've committed, so that the justice of God so that the holiness of God that had been offended could be appeased, could be made right, and His wrath, His anger over sin could be appeased and His judgment over all humanity averted. Scripture talks so beautifully of this idea of Jesus as our substitute, as our offering, as our sacrifice. I just want to look at a few passages of Scripture with you and just read some of these. A couple from Romans. This first from Romans chapter 3. Let me just read this for you. Listen. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned. Here's the, here's the judgment. Here's the accusation. Here's the reality of the courtroom scene. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now look at this. God presented Him. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice 
because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It was God himself who presented Jesus as an offering. It wasn't even necessarily Jesus from the back row saying, I'll do it. It was God from the very front saying, hey, I've got somebody. I've got somebody in mind for just this thing. Jesus became, to satisfy the justice, the justness of God, he had to offer Jesus, his own very son. Another passage from Romans chapter 5, I think this is. I love this. Read this with me, would you? You'll recognize this. In fact, I think I heard some of the kids quoting this in Sunday school this morning. Read it with me, would you? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that part when he says, you know, for a good man, somebody might just, yeah, they might do it. But for us, no way. And then he says, but just at the right time. That's the other part I love about that verse. Just at the right time, when we need it the most. God knew it. We were going down. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Again, the motivation for the atonement, the motivation for what God did for us on the cross is his own love for us. He demonstrated his great love for us by the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This one from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read this one with me too. We just sang this actually during the offertory. Read it with me. It's just this one screen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Just leave that up for a second. I love this idea and this words at the very end of the second line. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us. When I think about the, the idea of God taking this one who had no sin, his perfect sinless son, this one who had no fault, impeccable, and heaped upon him the very sin of all of us, the very world, so that he might be the substitute and pay the penalty in our place. Not just because he was a good guy. Not just because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Not just because he needed to kind of work himself out of some sort of a jam that he'd gotten himself into. But he did this for us. He did this. Personalize it. He did this for me. He did this for you. And then one more from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll just read this one for you. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then Peter picks up Isaiah's words. He says, by his wounds, you've been healed. By his wounds, by the price that he paid, by the suffering that he experienced on the cross, because of the sins, your sins that he bore in his body, we have been healed. Now, throughout history, there's been a couple of objections to this idea of the atonement. And I just want to 
be very transparent about these because sometimes they maybe have a little bit of weight. There have been some objections to this idea of, of Jesus as our sacrifice, as our substitute, as the one who satisfies the, 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 the anger and the wrath and the judgment of, of God. Um, some of these have maybe helped held people up, and, and currently, even in our own day, are holding some people up from, from being able to receive and understand this, this idea. One of the problems we have with thinking about God in this way is, is thinking about him as being wrathful and angry at, at us and at our sin. And maybe you're not like this, but maybe there's a lot of people in the world, not maybe, there is a lot of people in the world who, and in our day in churches and you know, different places. The message is that God loves you. And in fact, God loves you. He does. And the message is that God accepts you. And He does accept you. But tied in with that message that God loves me and accepts me so much that He doesn't care what I do or who I've been or where I've been or what I've done that somehow he's able just to kind of let all that slide because he just loves us so much. It's a, it's a warm, fuzzy God is what that is. And, and we like the warm, fuzzy God. I like the warm, fuzzy God. But Scripture calls us to realize that, that in fact, God is, is, is very angry at sin. And, and the word wrath is not too hard to describe how God feels about the sin in our lives, and the sin in our world. John Wesley wrote these words. He said, Nothing is more frequently or more expressly declared in Scripture than God's anger at sin and His punishing it both temporarily and eternally. His wrath must be understood in terms of the holiness of God. Indeed, is the very purity and beauty of that holiness. Then he said this as well. He said, we've got to remember that God's anger isn't like our anger. God's not out of control. He's not wild. He's not vengeful. He's not any of these things like human anger might be described. It's part of his, his, his love and his holiness that he expresses this kind of anger. And Wesley wrote these words again. He, I like this. He said that he firmly believed that God was angry with all mankind and that he was reconciled to them by the death of his son. And then he said this, and I know he was angry with me. <laughs> Wesley was willing to say, I, I know he was angry with me till I believed the son of his life. And yet this is no impeachment of his mercy, that he is just as well as merciful. We, we, we got to get over the fact that God can't be loving and angry. In fact, he can. Scripture makes it very clear. It, the other problem that many have had is this idea that, of Jesus as our substitute is this idea that God um, would somehow take out his punishment, his wrath, on an innocent victim. And in fact, some have gone so far as to say, this constitutes divine child abuse. Jesus was just this innocent victim I mean, we read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, I really don't want to do this, and God says, you're going to do it anyway, and, and divine child abuse carries out his punishment, the penalty for everyone else on this 
innocent victim. And many look at that and say, if God's really all that good, would he really do something like that? Would a good God really punish an innocent victim, his own son, in such a fashion? And maybe some of you even right now are thinking, that's a good question. (laughs) Would he really do that? And it's bantered around quite a bit in the world in, in our day and in theological conversations going on. But the thing that we have to remember, and I think that, that not to take an easy way out of that question or that discussion, but the thing that we always have to remember is that, who, who's Jesus? According to Trinitarian theology from the beginning of Christian history, Jesus is God. Who's God? God is Jesus. God is the Holy Spirit. There's this three-in-one thing going on that we call the Trinity that speaks of the fact that one is not operating independently of the other. There's not some sense where God says, I know, I'll take it out on that kid over there. The clearer sense is that God and the Son, the Father and the Son and the Spirit all got together and they said, yeah, I know how we can make this work. I've been on some wonderful teams in my life. I've talked about this before. And just to, to be on a, on a basketball team or some sort of a, even, a, even a ministry team like the one I'm part of right now on our staff and with our board and you as a church. I mean, there, there's a certain flow that just happens when you're, when you're working with, amidst the, the beauty of a, of a, of a team. This, you know what they call They have a word for it. It's called chemistry. It's, it's almost scientific. It's just beautiful how, how this flows and it's just so, so powerful. There is tremendous chemistry between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So don't think for a minute that God was carrying out this punishment on an innocent victim who would have had it done another way. When it came down to it, God was carrying out this punishment on a son who willingly laid down his life, who gave of himself freely and fully. So if we work through the issues, then let me just leave you with a couple of, a couple of responses. If we work through the issues, we're again reminded this is an amazing transaction. This is an amazing transaction. It's one, somebody smile at me, it's one that should bring an amazing smile to your face today. As I sang those songs, knowing what I was going to talk about, I was bouncing out of my chair over here, just, just celebrating Again, just this amazing transaction that God has made possible for us through the substitute sacrifice of His Son Jesus on our behalf. So how should this impact the way that we live each day? How should atonement make a difference? I hope you go out this way and say, I'm living this way because of the atonement. (laughs) Say that to yourself at least. Maybe not to anybody else. They might think you're weird. But... I'm living this way because of the atonement. Well, how are you living? Well, you're living with a great degree of gratitude, my friends. The, the word that a lot of liturgical churches use for, like Catholic or Episcopal or something, the word that they use for communion is this beautiful word that none of us really use in the Church of Nazarene, Eucharist. Some of you grew up using that in churches that you belong to, and you know what the, the Eucharist is, right? And, and maybe for some of you, the Eucharist has just become this rote, you know, whatever, ritual. But, but Eucharist means giving thanks. It's literally what it means. Giving thanks. And so when we come to receive communion, when we come to celebrate what 
Jesus has done for us on the cross, we are to give thanks. But I want to extend that beyond just the time of celebrating communion to a time of, of, of every day when you wake up in the morning. Might you say to yourself or somehow think to yourself, I'm going to live this day, I think this is a word, Eucharistically. <laughs> I'm going to live this day with, with gratitude filled up in my heart because of the fact that I should have died. I should have been held accountable for the sin of all of humanity. Because of God's gracious act, he instead put that on my substitute, my Savior Jesus, who took that sin for me and has set me free to live my life this day in glory to him. With gratitude, my friends. I, my, I, my mom and dad gave me birth, right? My mom did. My, dad, my mom better not hear me say that about my dad. He didn't give me birth. He helped create me and make it so that I could be born. They, they brought me into this world, and they'll take me out. No, that, just had to say that. But they brought me into this, this world, and from the moment I started breathing, who did, I, who did I owe for my very breath, my very life? My parents. I mean, in an earthly level, right? On an earthly human level. I, if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here. And so, I don't know how you get along with your parents today, people whether you're a young person here or an older person or how you get along with your kids, but if you're a child of somebody here today, you ought to live with some degree of gratitude to your parents. They may be, I'll just be honest, they may be awful people. <laughs> I know some of your parents are awful people. Um, <laughs> not your parents. Your parents are awesome. Some of our parents have not been the greatest parents, let's say it like that. But, but can, we, can we live each day with some degree of gratitude? Uh, we should, absolutely. If that's the case, then, then how should we live towards the one who has given us eternal life with a great degree of gratitude? Secondly, if, if God took our sins so seriously that he thought it necessary to substitute his own son, if Jesus himself said, I'm willing to do that, to suffer in our place. And I'm not painting any grotesque pictures of the cross, but you've heard enough of them. If Jesus was willing to do that because he took our, the Trinity took our sins so seriously, then I think this, this atonement metaphor helps remind us that we too ought to take our sin with great seriousness. There is, just say it this way, there's, there's nothing casual there's nothing flippant. There's nothing funny. There's nothing recreational about our sin. Don't worry, I'm preaching to myself as well. If God took this sin with such a degree of seriousness, that he would substitute his very own son for that sin, then we ought to live each day. Living atonement means to deal very seriously with the sin in our lives, the disobedience, the rebelliousness, the self-centeredness. It means to look 
very carefully at it or any glimpses of it, to invite the Holy Spirit to search us in such a way that he reveals it to us and then to deal with it decisively by bringing it to Jesus, this very one who died to take it away. I just, I just know that there's too many of us, too many Christians around the world who are, who are living in casual sin. And, and we're excusing it, we're making, just, you know, justifying it, we're making excuses for it, whatever, whatever it might be. And, and I just, I'm struck by this image of the atonement to think that we just cannot do that. It doesn't mean that you're not going to sin potentially as you move away from God and, and kind of turn your own way. That, that's, that's always a possibility for us. But it means that if we're wanting to walk with Jesus, if we're wanting to walk in relationship with Him, if we're wanting to take full advantage of all that he did for us. We're going to deal with that very seriously. Maybe some of you need to deal with it even today. And then the last one is just simply this, that because of this understanding of the atonement, because of what God has done for us by substituting Jesus in our place, we can have amazing hope, my friends. We can have amazing hope, not only for ourselves, but for the church. If, if this is the extent to which God went, then what won't he do for us? And not only can we have great hope for the church, but we can have great hope for the world. And you can even have great hope for those awful parents I was talking about earlier. Or somebody else in your life that you know that seems so far from Christ, so rebellious, so hurtful, so distant from God, Never give up hope on that person this morning because it's not necessarily all about them. It's not about all about them. God substituted his son Jesus for their sin as much as he did for yours. And that offer is ready and waiting whenever the Spirit leads them to turn and receive. Never give up hope. Thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus, our substitute, our sacrifice, God's satisfaction, the one we look to for our hope, for our salvation, for our life. Let's stand. God, thank you for taking one who knew no sin, and making him sin for us, for me. Thank you for a substitute who raised his hand having had previous conversations with the judge, said, I'll, I'll do it. And who set us free. May we look at that gift of grace with great, great seriousness today, with great joy, with great hope, with great gratitude. And may we live atonement this very day. God, you're dealing with some about the casual nature of sin in their lives. God, you're dealing with some about the lack of 
gratitude, appreciation of who you are and what you've done. Maybe you're dealing with someone about the fact that they've given up hope on somebody else. Our hope is in you. Amen. Let's sing together. strikes me that there may be some here this morning that while you hear this amazing report, this incredibly good news, that you would have to say that you've actually never, never laid claim to this amazing gift that God has made available to us, that our sins could be forgiven, that we could know life. The reality is that while he makes this available to all humanity, we believe that we have to make a choice whether to lay claim to it and apply the benefits of what God has done for us in Jesus to our own lives. Maybe some of you this morning just would need to say, "Ah, I want to do that today. I want to do that today. And maybe you'd want to come and just meet with me afterwards here and just talk to me about how, how that looks and what that means in your life. I'd love to have that continuing conversation with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, each one of you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and he be gracious unto you. Lord, lift his face to you and shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. God bless you.